Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, and I hope that you do, if you'll take it, and we're going to take a brief time out from the book of Matthew, and we're going to go to Genesis chapter 2. We were on track until Thursday to be in Matthew chapter 14, or 13, wherever we are, and then when our Supreme Court saw fit to approve uh, the same-sex marriage statewide in all 50 states, we needed to call an audible and uh, as a church, remind ourselves that God's plan for marriage is not anything like what our states or our Supreme Court views as what's suitable for marriage. And so we're going to jump into the book of Genesis chapter 2. And what we're going to do is we're not going to be hateful. We're not going to be mean. We're going to be compassionate. We're going to look and we're going to see strictly what God has to say throughout the Old Testament We're going to transition over to the New Testament. We're going to see what God has to say. And the things that God has to say are very, very, very firm. And they're very, very sharp. And I'm going to tell you that if if it was just Bobby standing here talking to you about same-sex marriage, there are probably places where I would be more compassionate. But God, as the creator of the universe, has seen fit for certain sins and certain things to be very sharp and to be very direct and we are going to we are going to say things exactly the way that God says them unapologetically and then in the end i think that you're going to find that once we get to the end of our new testament survey you're going to find things very satisfactory in the end though the way that we close things all together and so if you're here and you go well uh, i'm probably going to disagree with most things that he has to say i want you to just just listen Just hear things out, and then at the end, if you're not satisfied, then be upset. But God brings things to a close very, very well, and I think that you'll find satisfaction where we go. So let's go to the Lord in prayer uh, and ask for His wisdom and His guidance and patience as we plow through this issue, and then we will uh, get started. Father, we thank You for Your Word, and Father, we thank You that You and You alone created the universe And Lord, we thank you that you did not just set things in stride and leave them to fend for themselves, but you left us a book. Lord, you left us your word, and you left us the way that you wanted things to operate. And Father, I pray that we as your people would read your word. I pray that we would heed the words that you left us. And Lord, I pray that we would walk in obedience to your commands and your statutes. And Father, I pray that we would never change the words that you say for our own desires or for our own comfort. And God, I pray that as we go forth, I pray that you would guard my mouth against anything slanderous. Lord, I pray that you would guard uh, anyone's heart. And I pray that you would be with our ears. And Lord, I pray that people would hear exactly the words that I'm saying. And then I'm repeating the words that you've said. And Father, I pray that as we do this, we're able to do it all out of love and compassion And Lord, I pray that in the end, we're able to land exactly where you would have us on this. And so, Father, despite everything that's been done in our country uh, this week, Lord, I pray that your word and your son would prevail. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, here we are in Genesis. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 2, but just to jog your memory from Genesis chapter 1, the Bible starts out, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. God. And so before there was anything, before anything, before nothing was there, God was there. And God created everything out of nothing. 
And so at one time, it was only God. And if you really want to give yourself a headache, try to think through that God is infinite and that God was infinite and there was never a time when God was not. You with me? He was just always there. And if you figure that out, if you can wrap your mind around that, uh, you should be here and I should be there because it is incomprehensible, the idea of God being infinite and there being nothing at one point except God. And so God sees fit to create everything that you've ever seen. He creates all the worlds. He creates all the people. He creates Every single thing in Genesis chapter 1. And so if you go back and you read Genesis 1 and 2, I want to just teach you one thing along the way. Genesis 1 is kind of an overview of the days of creation. Okay, so Genesis 1, he lays out everything that he's created. And then when you move into Genesis chapter 2, he kind of backtracks a little bit and he's going to zoom in on day 6. And so it's not that he creates everything and then chapter 2 is on top of that. It's that Moses lays out everything, and then he rewinds and he zooms in a little bit on day six. So keep that in mind. There's a lot of heresies that that spring up out of a misunderstanding of Genesis 1 and 2. And so if you go into Genesis chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 15. Genesis chapter 2, 15 says this. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And so this is probably going to be in poor taste, and hopefully this is the only time that I show potentially poor taste in this sermon. But you guys are going to be on the edge of your seats the whole time, and you need to loosen up just a little bit. Okay? And so in this section of Scripture, God comes to man, and he says, Man, there's no creature suitable for you, so I'm going to make you a helper. And it's not written here, but this is what they say. You know what they say, right? You know how truthful it is? Come on, gang. Just be with me a little bit. Just loosen up. They say that God comes to man and he says, Adam, I'm going to make you a helper. I'm going to make you a helper like you have never seen. She is going to make you breakfast in bed every morning. She is going to do all of your laundry. She is going to keep all of your house clean. And she is going to work 40, 50, 60 hours a week. And she is going to contribute just as much financially to the family as you are. And he says, and on top of that, she's going to cut the grass and she's going to pressure wash the house. And when the roof needs to be roofed, she's going to do it too. And Adam goes, wow, that sounds absolutely fantastic. And Adam says, well, what's it going to cost me? And God says, well, it's going to cost you an arm and a leg. And Adam says, man, I I don't know. He says, well, what what can I get for a rib? (laughs) All right. So that was poor taste. I understand that. But you needed that. And I needed that for us to, to be at ease as we walk through. And so God comes down and he looks at everything he's created. And he says, there is no helper suitable for man. And he also, listen to this, in verse 18, he says, it's not good for the man to be alone. And so it's not good for the man to be by himself. Don't read into this, it's not good for the man to be lonely. Because Adam was never lonely as a single male in the garden at all. Okay? He had the complete companionship of the Trinity that was there and was walking in the garden with him. Everything was perfect. And so he says here, it's not good for the man to be alone. It's not good for him to be by himself. And why isn't it good for him to be by himself? 
The reason it isn't good for him to be by himself is because he needs a helper for the role that God wants the human race to play on the earth. So it's not good for him to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Verse 19, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds and to the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. And then he took one of the ribs and closed up the flesh of that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Listen to this in verse 23. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And listen to this. This is the commandment. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And this is the principle and this is the go-to scripture where we get all of our foundation for marriage. And so for this reason, a man, that's a masculine word, shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. That's a feminine word. And they shall become one flesh. And so all of the old guys, all of the guys around the Reformation, like Martin Luther and John Calvin, and these guys who wrote deeply about the scriptures, when they talk about marriage, they hold in very, very high esteem this one flesh union. And so this is going to probably be more of a PG-13 sermon than you've heard before. But when you take a man and you take a woman, they fit together after they've been married perfectly into a one flesh union. Their bodies are such designed that they can be joined together naturally and the two become one flesh. And so later on in the book of Corinthians, when Paul's going to talk about all sorts of uh, sexual sins and prostitution and things like that, Paul says, listen, it is not good for the members of Christ to be joined to a prostitute because sexual sins are different than other types of sin. Okay, they're equal in God's judgment where they're all condemned, but there is something about them that goes completely against the rule and the nature in which God has created things. And so for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and he shall be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And so from this, brothers and sisters, we get every core belief about marriage that we have. If you were to flip back one or two pages into the book of Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 you have more of a purpose of why and you have a function of marriage and so in Genesis chapter 1 26 then God said let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over the cattle and all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth so God created man in his own image in the image of God he created him male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so if you were to take Genesis one and two together, you would find that God creates male and female, that they're supposed to be joined together in what we call a one flesh union and that their purpose, part of the function of marriage is that they function 
very similar to the way the Trinity functions. The male is going to lead and the, the, the woman is going to help. She's the perfect helper to the man. And they're also going to be fruitful and they're going to multiply. And I told you a long time ago that they're going to be fruitful and multiply and they're going to fill the earth with worshipers of God. And so the purpose of marriage is that you have a man leading and you have a woman coming alongside and she's helping and they're growing worshipers who worship the Lord. Okay? And whenever any of this is out of place, this ruins God's design for marriage. Whenever you take away a man, whenever you take away a woman, or whenever anything other than a man leaving his husband, leaving his mother and father and being joined to his wife and then being fruitful and multiplying, anytime you leave that as God's design, you're going in a bad direction. And so let's keep going forward through the book of Genesis and see some things that come up that leave God's perfect design. So go over to the book of Genesis chapter 19. Hopefully you remember uh, in Genesis chapter 19 or in Genesis chapter 12, uh, the story continues where God chooses Abraham and he says, Abraham, through you, I'm going to draw the nations of the world to myself. Uh, Abraham is supposed to leave his land, leave his father's family, but he takes Lot with him. Abraham and Lot, they get to the... Uh, this valley or they get to this plain and they look out and they've both accumulated so much goods Abraham looks at Lot and he says Lot you go one way I'll go the other way and so Lot chooses a place that's well well watered and he goes to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and he lives his life there and Abraham goes a different way well Sodom and Gomorrah uh, end up being very wicked cities and an angel comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham says, will you spare the city on account of so many righteous souls? God says, yes. And you remember the dialogue between Abraham and the angel. And what happens is that eventually Sodom and Gomorrah have to be destroyed. But God sends an angel to go and rescue Lot. And when the angels go to rescue Lot, this is what happens in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. We're in Genesis chapter 19. We're going to start in verse 4. So the angels have come, and they're going to stay at the house of Lot. And it says, before they lay down, verse 4, this is before the angels go to sleep, before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. And you see that you have in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, you have... uh, Homosexual activity taking place on a massive scale. And every time that you see Sodom and Gomorrah referenced, when you get over to the New Testament, it's always a wicked and rebellious city that God had to destroy because of the extent of sin in the city. If you were to keep plugging away through the Old Testament, you would get to uh, the book of Leviticus. So turn over to the book of Leviticus. We're going to be in Leviticus chapter 18. And you have several commandments concerning uh, marriage. This is Leviticus chapter 18. We're going to be in verse 22. And so we've talked about what marriage is. And this is opposed to marriage. In Leviticus chapter 18 verse 22. He says this. You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. You're not to have two males lying together because 
What? Because it's an abomination. And this is specifically the Lord's language. Now I want to go to verse 29 of the same chapter. And listen to this. Listen to the punishment that God gave. Now you need to hear this thing out through to the very end. Listen to the punishment that God gives for anyone who lies with a male as one lies with a female. This is chapter 18, verse 29. For whoever does any of these abominations, those persons who do so shall be cut off from among their people. So whoever does these things, they're to be separated from God's people. And so if you're in the nation of Israel and there is a a homosexual that's taking part in homosexual activities, that person is to be separated from the nation of Israel. And you go, well, that's mean and that's hateful and all of these other words that get spewed out all over news channels. That's what God said, bottom line. Old covenant, that's what happens. Now we keep going in the book of Leviticus to chapter 20. Leviticus chapter 20, we're in verse 13. And it gets even more severe. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13. If there is a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. And so underneath of the Old Covenant, we don't live under the Old Covenant anymore, okay? I want you to know that I I think from the bottom of my heart that the Arabs that are part of ISIS, that are executing homosexuals, I think that's wrong, and I think it's a sin. But underneath of the Old Covenant, that's God's command. If a man lies with a man, as one lies with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act, they shall surely be put to death, their blood guiltiness is upon them. And so the way that God orchestrated things originally was that there were not to be any homosexuals among the people because it's a detestable sin, it's an abomination, you were to put those people away, and at some point, sometimes you were supposed to stone them. So you go further into the Old Testament and you get to the book of the Kings. Get to the people. Uh, actually, you, after you leave Leviticus, you get to the book of Judges. And in Judges 19 through 21, you find that there's a Levite. We're not going to, I'm not going to read anything from there. But there's a Levite who has a, uh, a concubine. And the Levite goes to the city where the concubine's family lived and he stays there. And what happens is that the tribe of Benjamin, the Gibeon people from the tribe of, that are living in the tribe of Benjamin, they want to have relations with him as well. And what happens is, is that the rest of Israel finds out what's going on. And there's a civil war in Israel because the Benjaminites were housing people who were participating in homosexual acts. And it was so detestable that that's what they did. It was was enough of a detestable thing for the whole nation to go to war against the tribe of Benjamin because it was a grievous sin to the Lord. That's Judges chapter 19 through 21 if you're interested more. Then you go into the kings and you find out that if you're keeping up with the scriptures, you have godly kings and you have wicked kings. Very rarely did godly kings succeed each other. But during the reign of each of the godly kings, you read about more, excuse me, during the reign of the ungodly kings, you read about more and more and more homosexuality during the reign of the ungodly kings. This is all in First and Second Kings if you want to read it. And so you leave and you realize as you're going through the Old Testament that it's only when ungodly people are ruling and only when ungodly people are left free to themselves that all of these acts of homosexuality happen. And so now you transition over into the New Testament. And so let's go over the New Testament into Romans chapter 1. Now hang on, we're going somewhere. I haven't 
said anything yet except for reading the Old Testament. Hang on. We'll go to Romans chapter 1, and you're going to find out why these things happen. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 says this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And so what he's doing is, and Paul in the very beginning of Romans is he's showing that the whole world is condemned. And what he's going to show you is that whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile, whether you've never heard of Christ, whether you do have heard of Christ, that all of those people are condemned and they're in need of salvation. And he's going to show you that no matter what your background you're in sin, and you need to be delivered from that sin, and that's Jesus Christ. And so he starts out with a general condemnation of everyone, and then he's going to move on to hope. But I want you to see this. And so the wrath of God in verse 18 is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. And so he says that people have things, excuse me, That God is evident to all people. Verse 20. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through that which has been made so so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And so what this is saying is that you can look around at creation and every single individual who's ever lived can see God's qualities in creation and they're without excuse that there is a God and that He exists and that He's in rule over everything. And so what he says is that these people suppress that truth within them and they give in to all of their futile feelings and everything else. And if you want proof of this, listen, there are brilliant people People in this world who are scholars and their PhDs in all of these high-level fields, but they deny God and they buy into all of these crazy beliefs. You will have some of the smartest people in the world who buy into evolution and they buy into all of these other things and they will teach your students when they go to college all sorts of crazy things. And these are brilliant people who know that there's a God, but they hold so fast and so hard and so true to denying God. And the reason that you hold fast and true to denying God is because if you recognize there's a God, you've got to recognize that you have to do what He says. And so for some people, they would rather deny that God exists. And so what they do is they professing to be wise, they became fools. And have you seen some of the ridiculous foolishness that comes out of some of the quote-unquote smartest people you've ever seen. I was watching a show one day with my dad, and they were interviewing this person on the Today Show or one of those one of those wild shows, and he said that he believed that the origins of man came from a worm inside the planet Mars, and that worm somehow floated over to Earth, and then through evolution we have what we have now. And this was a brilliant man on TV saying the dumbest stuff I've ever heard in my entire life. But the man is brilliant. But he's traded in wisdom, and he sounds like a fool. 
And my dad looked at me very sternly and said, son, if I spent that much money on your education and you said things that were that dumb, you would have a butt whooping coming no matter where you are. And so anyways, that's how things went in my family. Then you go on and you find that no one is without excuse. Everyone knows that there's a God and people are denying him and they're professing to be wise, but they become fools. Then he says, because of that, listen to this. This is very important because they have rejected God. This other part happens. And so therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creator, the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the women and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness. Now listen to this. This is not only speaking of homosexuals, but this is speaking of Everyone who has denied God and worshiped their creation rather than the creator. Okay. And just as they, this is verse 28, did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are not worthy of death, they only, they not only do they do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. And so what he says here is that as a result of people suppressing the knowledge of God inside of them, God hands them over to do whatever they want to do. And this is the direction that their lives lead. Their lives lead to unnatural sexual relationships. Their lives lead towards wickedness, unrighteousness, greed, evil, murder, strife, deceit, malice, and gossip, slanders, haters of God, arrogant, boastful. Inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. And so whenever someone suppresses God and they live for themselves, worshiping themselves over the creator, these are the attributes that naturally come about in their life. And so just just hear my heart here. It's not that because someone rejects God that homosexuality is a penalty or anything like that. It's, it's not... Uh, it's that people reject God and they do whatever they want to do. And God says that this is not good. Let's keep going on. I want you to see first Timothy. Then we're going to tie all this together. We're over in first Timothy. We're going to be in chapter one. Listen to the things that Paul says to Timothy. And some of this is going to uh, pertain to homosexuality also. First Timothy chapter one, verse three. As I urge you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. 
But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion. Listen to this. Wanting to be teachers of the law, even even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. And so these are people who are uneducated in God's Word, wanting to be teachers of God's Word. Last week, I made an illustration about suckers that grow out of the ground next to tomato plants. And what happens is actually the plant produces the sucker itself. And now, those of you who were listening were thinking, that old boy ain't no farmer. He don't have any idea what he's talking about. And you're right. I'm not a farmer. I'm not an instructor of farmers. And when I got into your area of farming, I was mistaken. Okay? And so I was someone who was trying to use an illustration. And because I didn't have enough knowledge about that particular area, I sounded like a fool to many of you. Right? That's the most agreeing y'all have ever done. But I got out of my realm of expertise. Let me tell you this. I understand God's word. I understand exactly what God is saying. I don't understand everything about farming. But there are people who are pushing the homosexual agenda who say that they know God's word and they say they've read God's word and they say that they know God, but they are fools professing to be wise. They want to be teachers of God's law, but they don't understand God's law. Just like I didn't understand farming, but used the farming illustration. All of my illustrations break down at some point. I try to make things applicable. But when it comes to God's word, I'm not wrong when, I, when I'm preaching God's word to you. Okay? And so he goes on to say, he says that wanting to be teachers, verse 7, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they don't understand either what they're saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Verse 9, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious. So listen to this. Now he's going to describe lawless and rebellious people. For the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And so, brothers and sisters, what I want to do is I want to take it easy on the sin of homosexuality in order to show them love, but being surrounded by brothers and sisters of the faith who are supposed to be in the same common faith as I do, the Word of God says that these people, that homosexuals, are lawless and rebellious, ungodly and sinners, unholy and profane. And brothers and sisters, that doesn't sound like anything that we hear on TV. And it hurts to say it because we live in a culture that says you need to accept everybody. But God clearly says that these things are wrong. And listen, I am not just picking on the sin of homosexuality. There are a ton of sins that you're going to see later when we flip over to Corinthians that we're all guilty of. But what's on the table, what's at stake now in our country is homosexuality. And we as a church cannot accept homosexuality. And as long as I'm your pastor, there will never be a homosexual marriage in this church. And they will take me to jail and you will raise my kids before they force me to marry homosexuals. 
No matter the cost, God's word is worth standing on. And before you say I'm a judgmental bigot and all these other things, I have homosexuals in my family just like many of you do. And it's painful to say all of these things. But God's word is true. And God's word doesn't always have to be palatable for it to be true. Sin is sin no matter who is doing it. It's sin. And we have got to be a people who find a way to love sinners and not approve of the sinful activities that they do. And that's the balance that the church has to bring to the table. Because there is a way for us to disagree with people's lifestyles and still love them. And we're going to have to figure out, moving on into the next century, into the next few years, how we go about doing that and what it looks like. But I can tell you what the future of our church does look like. In the immediate, in the immediate future, we're going to have to put the rubber to the road and we're going to have to relook at church constitution. We're going to have to relook at our membership documents and the way that we accept members. And all of these things are going to have to be examined and they're going to have to be updated because churches right now are ripe for people with pushy agendas to come in and absolutely take advantage and take every single thing that we have. And you can't let that happen. Somehow the church has to be as wise as serpents and gentle as doves on this issue. And I am not the go-to person to know how to do this. And so what we're going to have is we're going to have a pool of godly men who are going to direct us through all this and figure out how we wade through this next generation and the mess that we've gotten ourselves into. And so let's keep going. If we go now to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're going to tie this together. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. While you're turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I want to take a side note and I want to give you a, an interesting fact. Uh, from the, the beginning of the founding of America, homosexuality has always been frowned upon. And you go, well, blah, 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 maybe not. Listen to this. In 1973, and just for the record, I wasn't around then. In 1973, the American Psychological Association removed homosexuality from its list of psychological of psychological diseases in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And so ever since 1973, when it was removed as a psychological disorder, our country has been trying to get approval and make this more normal. And so all of that to say, up until 1973, homosexuality was recognized by America, by American doctors, by unreligious people as a psychological disorder. And ever since then, we've been on the fast track to making it normal. And so something that was a psychological disorder in 1973 now is legal in all 50 states. And not only is it legal in all 50 states, but it's celebrated by our White House, not just in word, but also in lighting the White House up with all different lights, making it look like a homosexual flag. 
And so why we talk about homosexuality on a Sunday, why we depart from Matthew and the mission of God study we've been doing is because it's not just that America is caught up in sin. Everybody knows that there's people in America that sin. But this sort of sin is applauded and it's rubbed right in the face of God. And so this is something that is against every order that God has set up for marriage and human sexuality. And it's not just that it's happening. Everybody knows knew it's been happening for a long time. But now now we've approved of it as a country and now it's being pushed and shoved in our direction so at some point we've got to in a way show love and say no the buck stops here it's wrong and you're not pushing us another inch in this direction i'm trying to do that out of love listen to first corinthians chapter chapter six verse nine and this is the last section that we're going to go to or do you not know That the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And so, brothers and sisters, in the book of 1 Corinthians, you can say what you will about me. You can say that I'm mean. You can say a lot of things. You can say that I'm not compassionate. The word of God says that unrighteous people will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he goes on to list fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate and homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. And so the Bible clearly says that these people and these attitudes and people that are, that are, that are committing these sorts of sins opposed to God. They're not repentant of these sins. It says that these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so you have to stop and you have to ask yourself, does that mean that homosexual people will not go to heaven? And we're going to get off the, the where we've been talking about homosexuality as being wrong, and we're going to address a particular question about do homosexuals go to heaven when they die? Let me start by saying, can homosexuals go to heaven when they die? And the answer is, without a doubt, yes. Homosexuals can go to heaven when they die. Do practicing, proud homosexuals go to heaven when they die? And I'm going to tell you, out of this book, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, that the answer is no. Someone who is in open rebellion to God and following God with, without care for what he says, unrepentantly, in any of these sins... Adultery, fornication, idolatry, effeminate, homosexual, anybody that's actively and proudly pursuing any of those sins, those people do not enter into heaven. Out of 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 9. Can those people go to heaven? And the answer is without a doubt yes, because if you keep reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 11, he says this, Such were some of you, but you were washed You are sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our Lord. And so what this means is that all of us struggled with some of these sins in one way, shape, or form. But we were washed and we were cleansed because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so do people who are open in sin and rebellion towards God, do those people go to heaven? And the answer is no. Can those people go to heaven? Yes. They can be washed by the blood of Jesus Christ just like I was and just like hopefully you were as well. And so there is hope.
There's hope for everyone, regardless of anything that they've ever done. And so the question of this is, then it goes on to, well, what about a Christian? What about someone who's a follower of Christ who is homosexual? Can you be a homosexual and a follower of Christ? And I'm going to say that, yes, hold on here. It is possible to be a homosexual and a follower of Christ. But you will not be open and you will not be content with your homosexuality. It will be something that kills you through the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Just like if you're a fornicator or an adulterer or effeminate or you're a liar or a thief. Those people can be saved also. And it's possible to do those things while you're saved. But if you are doing them, the Holy Spirit is going to eat you alive. And you'll have no joy. You'll have no peace. And you'll have no contentment. And it will absolutely eat you alive from sunup to sundown. Because any, any Christian, if you go to the book of 1 John, any Christian who's living in sin, the proof that they're a Christian is that the Holy Spirit eats them alive. And God disciplines and judges those whom he calls his own. And so it's possible to suffer with addictions and be a Christian. But you will fight against that addiction every single day, and that's proof of your Christianity. So I hope that this is all making sense. And I hope that I'm showing you that we are all, all of us who profess Christ, struggle with some sort of sin. Okay? I'm a Christian, and I'm your pastor. I do not struggle with homosexuality. But things like adultery... Watching where my eyes wander, watching my heart, those things I struggle with on a daily basis. Some days I succeed and some days I fail. I'm still a Christian. But I'm a Christian who guards himself against these sins. I'm a Christian who's actively striving towards holiness and striving towards a lifestyle of repentance. And if I was openly caught up in adultery and openly caught up in all of these other things, that would be proof of my unbelief. And so I want you to see that it's not just homosexuality that we're preaching about today, but it's anybody who's in any sort of open sin and rebellion is not going to inherit the kingdom of God. But brothers and sisters, we are at a crossroads. You need to be real careful about your kids. And your kids that are in elementary school will not be old enough to remember a time when it was illegal for same-sex couples to be joined together in marriage. I have a hard time sleeping at night because my kids will not remember when it wasn't normal for two men to be married to each other. That's something that your parents, most of you, would have never believed would have happened. And somehow on our watch as Christians, we have allowed it to happen. And so where do we go from here? What do we do? I can't change any policies. You can't change any policies that are already in effect. But you, as parents, have direct control of what you teach your kids. You have direct control over where you send your kids to school and the things that they're learning. And you have a very high responsibility to be very careful which institutions of higher learning, colleges, that you send your children off to. Normal isn't normal anymore. And we have got to be people who, whether it seems mean or not, or fair or not, we have got to be people who stand on His Word. Because as soon as we rip out one page, we're going to be just like the denominations around us that are falling by the wayside. Brothers and sisters, I love people that are homosexuals. I am not mean to people who are homosexual. 
Uh, I, I went to school with some homosexuals. We eat dinner on a regular basis. Somehow, I have no idea how it happens to us. But whenever we go to a restaurant and we sit down and we don't have control over where we sit, if it's a place where multiple people sit together, every single time we sit down in a restaurant like that, there's a homosexual couple sitting there with us. And we don't call them out. We're not mean to them. We're nice to them. We're polite to them. But God's word says that people who disregard his word and who openly live in sin will not go to heaven. And so while I eat dinner with them, I pray for them that God would save them of their sins. Because God is willing to forgive anyone who will repent of their sins and follow Jesus Christ. And so we need to be a people who are heartbroken for our nation and heartbroken for homosexuals who think just because the Supreme Court said that it's okay to do it, they think that it's okay because the court system does not change the law of God. And one day when you stand before God, you'll be judged according to His laws, not the Supreme Court's laws. And so I want to close us in prayer. But as I close us in prayer, I want to ask any of you who want to come down front and to pray for our nation to pray for our homosexual population who want to pray for anyone who doesn't know Christ. I want you to come down front. If you can't kneel, you're welcome to sit. But we need to be in prayer for our country because we are going down a road that is not good. And if you just simply look through history, as nations get more modernized, as they get more progressive, whenever they open up to these sort of sexual debaucheries, they always fall and so I think this was a nail in a coffin for our country that did so great for so many years. And now I think that um, unless we have a revival in America, that we are ultimately going downhill. And so I don't say that as a doom and gloom guy. That's just a biblical observation. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. And as I pray, you men feel welcome. You ladies feel welcome to come down front. And after I pray, I'll give a, a, a moment of silence for you all to pray uh, to yourselves. And then after it's quiet for a minute, Randy, I'm going to ask you to close us in prayer. And then uh, John will lead us in our uh, hymn of invitation. Let's pray. Father, we, as the people of this church, Lord, we pray that you would send revival to our nation. Lord, I pray that you would help every man, woman, and child in this country to realize that we cannot escape your law, that we cannot escape your word, and Lord, that you are not, you are not one to take sin lightly, but God, you love us, and you love us so much that you sent your son to die for our sins. And Father, that any sin that we will repent of while we're on this earth, you are faithful to forgive us of. And so, Father, I pray for the people in our nation who are, who are living in sin, that are living in uh, open and outright blatant sin against you. Lord, I pray that they would be convicted of it. I pray that they would see how great and how loving of a God that you are and that you extend your hand to us even while we're sinning against you. And so, God, I pray that we would see a, a old-fashioned revival sweep across this nation. Lord, I pray that somehow you would show us as a church how to stand for righteousness, how to stand against sin, but love those people who are in sin. And Father, as we try to do that, I pray that the world around us would see that we serve a king who is greater than anything else this world has to offer. And so, Father, we pray for wisdom and guidance as we move forward. And Father, we also pray uh, 
for a revival that can only come from heaven. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I was hoping that some of you might come down front and pray with me while we were praying, but it may not have been clear. And so, Randy, I'm going to skip your closing us in prayer. And, John, if you'll come and close us with a song of invitation. If you'll stand for a hymn of invitation. And even though we're uh, singing our hymn of invitation, if you still want to come and pray for our nation, pray for any of your loved ones who don't know Christ. And if you don't know Christ yourself, I would love to introduce him to you. So the the altar is open for prayer. And uh, John will keep leading us until you're finished. Well, I want to thank you all for coming and being here. It's always great to worship the Lord with you. I want to let you know, and I hope you hear me loud and clear, every Wednesday after I preach a sermon, uh, on Wednesday night we have a time of prayer for our church, for our lost friends and family, and then open it up for anybody who has any questions about anything we talked about on Sunday. And so if uh, you kind of raised an eyebrow to anything that I may have said, you may have thought, hmm, I wonder, what about this situation? What about that situation? You said this. I don't know if I would have said that. Come on Wednesday night, and it's fair game to ask absolutely any question that you have uh, of me or of anything that I said. And trust me, we get some really good questions sometimes. What I don't like, though is when I hear hearsay things and people say things to other people and they don't have the gumption to come on Wednesday night and ask a question themselves. They just choose to get mad at something I said. And so hopefully you hear my heart in a really nice way. But I want to openly invite you on Wednesday night. I think that you would you would really enjoy that time we have together as a church, praying together and uh, seeking clarity uh, as a group. So as we close, don't forget if you have a, if you're going to help out in vacation Bible school, we're going to meet right down here. And I'm going to ask Dr. Tarkington if you would close us in prayer.